folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We are embarking on quite a journey here. We're only one podcast into a big series. Maybe, who knows, maybe I'll do 50 of these or 50 chapters in Genesis. Can you hold on for that long? I'm not sure. But nonetheless, we're on this journey, and we just started with Christianity in Genesis. Last time, Christianity in Genesis 1, I'm going to do Christianity in Genesis 2 this time. What I have in mind, I think I mentioned this last time, In what ways is this text, this Old Testament book called Genesis, this first book of the Bible, Christian scripture? That is, in what way is this text bear witness, testify to the person and work of Christ, for example, to the Christian's life in him, to the Christian church of all times and places? Where can we see Christianity in the book of Genesis. Luther, by the way, had a lot to say about this. I'm going to kind of draw on him as we go along. Uh, chapter two, I, every, all these first three chapters, I mean, that's a study in itself, and that you could easily take years. You could easily take years on these fr- books and books and books. You know, it's just, I, you know, you, you can't overestimate how important these first three chapters of Genesis. So there's plenty to talk about, so I'll, I'll quit yakking there and just dive right into the text. So we left off last time With this, God saw that everything was good. Day six, creation of man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Day seven, pretty fascinating. I love this day. Uh, We'll read here chapter two, verses one to three, and then go from there. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So fascinating, just a few verses here, very rich. I guess first things first, last time, I want to carry forward a big point from last time. If you forget everything else, God creates in ways that show how he saves we saw a spirit hanging out with the water, for example, and so on. We talk, They'll just refer you to the last podcast. But God creating in ways that show how he will be saving down the road. Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Plan A, as much as that is just profound and maybe hard to wrap your minds around. Plan A, lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, of course, creation is going to bear witness to that in many and various ways. We talked about that last time. We're going to talk about it again here with the Sabbath day. Why does God rest? Makes a big deal of it. Several verses talking about he finished his work that he had done, rested on the seventh day, all the work that he had done, because on it God rested from his work that he had done. Very repetitive, but the Bible does not waste words. And so when you get this repetition, something very significant is going on. And that is, there is this period of rest for God after the work that he had done. Now, why would he need to rest? Did he just get tired and so on? I always ask my students this, you know, how do we think about this? 
Well, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Actually, the only time in the book of Genesis where this verb for making holy, this uh, sanctify, make holy, make distinct, set it apart, blessed, hallowed, holy, sanctified. This is the only time it occurs in the whole book. Huge deal. God is doing something here that indicates what he's going to do in the plan of salvation. If humankind is made in his image, then there's going to be some sort of working and then resting. On the seventh day is a a kind of picture, you might say, of our eternal rest in him. God rests so that you know in the bigger picture of the scriptures, we will have our Sabbath day, our seventh day rest in him. Now, we know that that's only possible because the eighth day, the new day, Think eight-sided baptismal fonts and so on, eighth day, the Sunday, the new day, the resurrection day. We know that that seventh day eternal rest, eternal Sabbath, is only possible because of that eighth day brought about by Christ. But nonetheless, this is the story of the whole Bible in these first seven days, you might say. God, oh, this is the other thing, too. Maybe you know, every other day in the scriptures, in the first chapter, in the evening and it was morning the second day, evening and morning the third day, evening and morning the fourth day, and you go all the way to the seventh, and guess what you do not have? You do not have a closure to this day. Where is the, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day? It's not there. In some ways, the entire rest of the Bible is going to tell you what brings this seventh day to its intended completion. Again, that's going to have everything to do with an eighth day rest in Christ. But there is no end to the seventh day. The rest of the whole Bible is. This is why Luther would say Adam fell on the seventh day. He should have been resting. He should have been contemplating, reflecting on the, meditating on God's word about this tree and so on. Um, There is this seventh day rest that has no end. And God rests on this day to show us primarily that our final rest is in him, that we will rest in him. Why do we even you know, have a period of rest so that we remember who is the one doing the sanctifying, who's the one making holy. If we never rest, we might just, that's why it's such a big deal later on when you break the Sabbath, you rest on that day to always get the reminder, hey, at the end of the day, salvation is in the Lord's hands. He's the one making you holy. You're not working toward this, earning it, bringing anything to the to the table, He's the one making holy and blessing as we rest and just receive those wonderful gifts. God models that saving activity in his creating. How will God make holy and bless? It has everything to do with humanity resting in him. Not earning it, but resting in him and ultimately resting in him Forever, Augustine famously said once, maybe some of you know this, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It's the end of the first paragraph of his famous work, uh, The Confessions. Marvelous stuff. And that's what this kind of... Augustine on Genesis 2 is just fascinating. He's all about this. Our final rest is in God himself, and that's being demonstrated here. After that... After that, we get a kind of recap of the creation of man and woman. And I think that this is fascinating because it's kind of like saying, you know, day six really deserves another go. Let's take a look at it from another perspective, and that is not so much the image of God, um, male and female talk that we saw in Genesis 1, but a little bit more of the, 
I'm tempted to say incarnational, the um, formed out of the dust of the ground, breath, spirit of life, body and soul emphasis. So we read there in verses 4 to 9, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about those trees real, real soon, but let me just point out here the emphasis on humanity being formed from the dust of the ground, or I should say Adam, and then of course Eve is going to come from the side of, uh, from the rib of Adam. Luther here sees a, a kind of, he says it's albeit dim, but certainly an indication of the incarnation. Think about the significance of God not creating humanity as he did, for example, you know, let there be light or something, that actually forms humanity, forms Adam from an existing substance, the dust of the ground. And for Luther and many others, we got to think here about the substance, okay, of the same substance as the Father, but also taking on flesh in the incarnation, the substance of humanity. And so we have this kind of indication of there's something very unique about humanity as they reflect God's image, unlike anything else in all of creation will reflect him. But there's also a kind of unique witness here to a central confession of the Christian faith about the incarnation, God becoming man, this infinite taking on something that is finite, word becoming flesh, and so on. It can go on and on. Um, but this is kind of a, you know, it's one, just, is he just, you know, kind of thinking creatively about how to make Adam? Is he also thinking about the bigger picture, the bigger story? And what also, I think, flows from that, no pun intended, are the rivers that flow from Eden. The next few verses, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. This, I think, is a huge, and you get the description there in the next few verses. I think this is absolutely huge. Uh, for the significance of what paradise is all about. Now, of all the things you could tell me about paradise, we're going to hear about the trees. We'll talk about them maybe after the break. But here we have, before we even get to further description about the tree and eating and so on, we have these rivers. And there are four of them. Why not 18 or 1? And 4, this is a classic moment where the Bible kind of sets up North, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth, as it were, or the language of what is very global, the number four, the global number four. And that is paradise flows by means of water throughout all of creation. If you want to think of Eden 
this paradise, this land of Eden planted in the east, which is its own kind of salvific direction. Think about all the stuff that happens from the east. Well, the sun rises in the east, right? Um, the entry to the tabernacle, the entry to the temple, it's all placed in the east. When God saves his people, he brings a great wind from the east for the exodus and for the plagues and so on. East, 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 and this is going to be big in in the prophets. Think uh, Ezekiel's vision of the temple. Think Revelation from beginning of the Bible to end. East is the direction of salvation. And yet here we have Garden of Eden in the east. It's the direction of, of paradise. And paradise flows by means of water throughout all the creation. You just got to find those that source of water. We have that in Christianity in the waters, of course, of holy baptism. These are the four rivers that flow from paradise already here and now in the church of all times and places. The water that makes new and unites us to this heavenly paradise called Eden, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a lot of there's a lot of language later on that kind of picks up like this is the Eden, this is the Jerusalem, this is the Zion, all of it by means of water that flows freely from the source to us. We're going to have to take a quick break here already, but uh, we're going to pick it up with uh, the Lord God taking and placing the man in the Garden of Eden and uh, go from there. Creation of Eve in just a moment. Hang in there. Christianity in Genesis 2. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Genesis 2, specifically Christianity in Genesis 2. These indications, I think I mentioned this, right? These indications about how God creates and what that has to do with how God saves. I think these are just, this is so significant because we tend to work within the confines of time, right? Or time seems to be our primary frame of reference as we kind of go through life. What time is it? How much time do I have? And it's just so 
that uh, is so governing for us that so often it's easy to kind of just use that as the primary lens for everything and forget that for God, he's not confined by time in the ways that we are. And so why not <laughs> do some things, uh, have eternity break into time or speak of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world or create something that happens in time four rivers flowing and so on in a way that bears witness to a much greater reality that transcends time the spiritual reality of baptismal water flowing and saving and giving eternal life. Let's pick this up now with the Lord God, um, no pun intended, picking up the man and putting him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This, by the way, is Christian vocation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Now, why didn't he just create the man right in the garden? This is huge. The Lord God takes the man and puts him. He didn't create him where he was, but he took him and he placed him. This is exactly Christian vocation. He takes you and he places you where he wants you to work and keep, watch over and guard and preserve and all of these things. This is exactly what we confess, that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. He places us where he wants us, right here, right now. He has called you, he has placed you to be in the place where you are, to do the things that he has given you to do and to trust in him to work through those things according to his good will and purposes and accomplish all the things he has in mind. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Work, by the way, is such... We talked about the Sabbath day, right? Resting. Well, on the flip side, work is such a clear testimony to who God is. God himself works, and if he creates humanity in his image, then, of course, humanity is going to bear witness to that by working as well, being creative and so on. I can't tell you how many times I run into students who are, you know, I wish, I'm so bored. I wish I had something to do. Why can't you just be bored forever? I'm just going to hang out in my parents' basement and do nothing. You know, why do you need something to do so badly? Well, there's something profoundly human uh, about the nature of being human in work, and that's in the design. And this is vocation. This is why it's so rewarding and fulfilling, knowing that, again, in the Lord, your labor is never in vain, that he works with you to accomplish these things that, I mean, beyond reason and senses, life is full of purpose and meaning as we carry out these vocational tasks to which he's called us. The Lord God then commands the man, oh, we live by his word. I mean, this is the other thing, too. The Christian faith, we live by the ear, we live by the word. Wouldn't Adam just be made with this knowledge? Why does he have to be told this? Then the Lord God commanded the man. Doesn't he know everything? Oh, you don't have to say, oh, I got it. I got it. Hey, you're going to tell me about this tree already, aren't you? I know what that's all about. No, he doesn't. He needs to be commanded it, apparently, because the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree. Now, even, that's the thing, too. One is that he lives by the word as we do in the Christian church of all times and places. Now, at the same time, this word might not always make sense or might not appear to conform to what we see in reality. You can surely eat of this tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Does Adam know what death is? Does Adam know, you know, the consequences of this? And he apparently needs to be told this. And at the same time, 
would he need to just trust this? Why would you ordain it that way, that this one kills? What is death, by the way? And all these other questions that, I mean, does he know these things? He had to be told this. So if he doesn't know these other things, then it also not only implies that he needs to live by the word, but that he also just needs to trust the Lord. That what he says about this is the case. Even if it's beyond reason and senses, his word prevails. We live by that, no matter what we're seeing in outward appearances. That's totally the life in the church. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This, of course, is a profound confession of what it means to be human, what the Christian church has confessed about the image of God and about the fact that humanity is relational. We are not, you might say, fully human when we are fully isolated. There's something that comes a lot, and this is, comes at various expressions, right? Friendship. Uh, why would loneliness be such a good thing? Not just such a bad thing. Sorry, not a good thing. It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Why would loneliness be so bad? Um, because that does not reflect God. I mean, that's one way to put it is that it's going to wear on you because it's not reflecting in God in the way that we're meant to. We're meant to relate back to him. God is not alone in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this plurality and singularity together, communal nature, you might say, interrelated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the same time, humanity cannot be completely isolated and bear witness or that image in which he's been made. And so... Anytime a healthy relationship forms, you're going to reflect something of this. So even you think of friendship, there's something unique about friendships that bears witness to characteristics of who God is. Love and care and concern for another reflects something about God's nature and character, precisely because you're not alone. Now extend that a little bit further. You think marriage, which we'll talk about, is also a an even higher, a unique reflection of who God is as God's son gives up his life for the sake of his bride, the church, and husbands love their wives selflessly and so on. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so throughout the Christian church, we relate one to another, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also at the same time we, who are married, bear witness to this relationship between Christ and his church in a unique way also. Isolation is a thing of the devil at the end of the day, and that is because God has created humanity to relate to him, to never be isolated from him. The naming of the animals after this is kind of a fascinating Everything's fascinating. Have I said that? Do I say that too much? I think I do. Now to the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We'll just stop there for a second. You see what humanity does here. You see what... Life in Christ, I should say, is all about. Don't you know that we're going to judge even the angels, Paul would say, when you're in Christ. And so there is this dominion. 
we talked about dominion already in the image of God. There is this dominion that Adam participates in, even with the naming of these animals. God names things. He calls a light day in the darkness. He called night. You know, these are familiar. God Naming things is what God does, and here he gives Adam some of that. Here, you're going to reflect, I name things. If you're made in my image, and you're going to name things. And also, it shows a kind of dominion there to the one that reflects God in this way. And so again, you know, when Paul talks about judging even the angels and so on, he has seated you in the heavenly places. You will reign with him. When God's kingdom comes, and that comes in Christ, we reign with him uh, and share with him and reign over all of creation. And so there is right now, again, this is a study of Christianity. In the Christian church, you are more than conquerors, Paul would say. A kingdom of priests, you hear in Revelation and so on, more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, who loved himself and gave himself up for us. We in Christ rule all things, no matter what the contrary appearances are when you just look out there. That's the kind of confession that is witnessed here in this naming of the animals. Everything out there has been made subject to us, albeit distorted now, certainly. But this, in this way, Genesis continues to give a kind of ultimate framework, framework for our relationship to God, to one to another, and to all of creation. That continues here in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Probably some familiar words here. First things first is that Adam made from the dust, Eve now made from one of his ribs, literally built, while he slept. By the way, this is this deep sleep is like a sleep of death. Elsewhere in the Psalms, for example, open my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is a profound sleep, a God-induced, a divinely-induced sleep. It's a sleep unlike any other sleep. And does that sound familiar about the sleep of death that our Lord Jesus experienced after the crucifixion? And while he slept, while he was in this sleep of death, comes new life from his flesh. One of his ribs from the side. Again, you think Garden of Eden in the east. Um, the side of Adam. Literally side. We put rib in there, but you know it's literally side. Again, east side of the tabernacle, this entrance to salvation. From the side, not from his big toe or from his left ear, but from the side of Adam, which is, of course, from the side also of the second Adam, blood and water, piercing, piercing. Uh, being pierced, flowing through his side, from his side. Think waters flowing from Eden. Now we have water flowing from the side of a second Adam. And here we have this language of the Lord building, which is, a, of course, a kind of architectural word. It's a weird word. I think in uh, 
Yeah, you get a footnote in the ESV Lutheran Study Bible. He made into a woman. He built. Uh, the tabernacle's built. The temple is built. Structures are built. Architecture, you know, this kind of thing, blueprints and so on. He builds into a woman. That woman, that Eve, that, uh, you know, Mary, by extension, the woman... What does this have to do with me? This is all the church. And Ephesians 5 kind of confirms that when Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The rib that the Lord God had taken, he built into a woman. So you think of this kind of, God will have no one call him father who won't have the building of the church as a mother. Kind of an ancient axiom that they said in the early church. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, same substance. Again, the substance business, substance of the Father from all eternity, substance of flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The definition there, or the the kind of the naming here and the explanation of the name, has to do with how they relate one to another. There's a complementarity there that's unique between man and woman, unlike anything else, unlike any other relationship in all of creation. And that is because this uh, marriage here bears witness in a unique way to that greatest marriage between Christ and his church. Why marriage at all? Why a binary humanity? Have you ever thought about these things? Why not just, you know, create 10 more million people out of the dust of the ground. If you want people, more people out of the dust. It worked the first time, just make more. But no, it's a binary humanity. It's a gendered humanity, too. Talked about this male and female last time, a kind of plurality and singularity at the same time, just as God himself is, three in one, plural, singular. And this complementary, this plural and single thing, bears witness to this greatest marriage, the plan of salvation from the get-go before the creation of any tree of the field and dust of the ground and so on. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. Even the talk of father and mother is kind of out of place. Who's Adam's father and mother, right? This kind of business of, wait, this is foundational for humanity of all times and places past, present, and future, and that's because it's the widest possible way to reflect what happens in eternity. The lamb, the marriage feast between the lamb and his bride, the church that has no end, a feast and a marriage we participate already here in time uh, in the Christian church and thereafter in eternity. Great stuff. Christianity in Genesis 2. We got to call it there for today, but let's keep cruising. Chapter 3. Boy, another big one next time. Can we do it? Check in and see. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian German, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. 